an animal of no significance. About 13.5 billion years ago, matter, energy, time, and space came into being, into what is known as the Big Bang. The story of these fundamental features of our universe is called physics. About 300,000 years after their appearance, matter and energy started to coalesce into complex structures called atoms, which then combined into molecules. The story of atoms, molecules, and their interactions is called chemistry. About 3.8 billion years ago, on a planet called Earth, certain molecules combined to form particularly large and intricate structures called organisms. The story of organisms is called biology. About 70,000 years ago, organisms belonging to the species Homo sapiens started to form even more elaborate structures called cultures. The subsequent development of these human cultures is called history. Three important revolutions shaped the course of history. The cognitive revolution kickstarted history about 70,000 years ago. The agricultural revolution sped it up about 12,000 years ago. The scientific revolution, which got underway only 500 years ago, may well end history and start something completely different. This book tells the story of how these three revolutions have affected humans and their fellow organisms. There were humans long before there was history. Animals, much like modern humans, first appeared about 2.5 million years ago, but for countless generations, they did not stand out from the myriad other organisms with which they shared their habitats. On a hike in East Africa two million years ago, you might, you might well have encountered a familiar cast of human characters, anxious mothers cuddling their babies and clutches of carefree children playing in the mud, temperamental youths chafing against the dictates of society, and weary elders who just wanted to be left in peace chest-thumping machos trying to impress the local beauty and wise old matriarchs who had already seen it all. These archaic humans loved, played, formed close relationships, and competed for status and power, but so did chimpanzees, baboons, and elephants. There was nothing special about humans. Nobody, least of all humans themselves, had any inkling that their descendants would one day walk on the moon split the atom, fathom the genetic code, and write history books. The most important thing to know about prehistoric humans is that they were insignificant animals with no more impact on their environment than gorillas, fireflies, or jellyfish. Biologists classify organisms into species. Animals are said to belong to the same species if they tend to mate with each other giving birth to fertile offspring. Horses and donkeys have a recent common ancestor and share many physical traits, but they show little sexual interest in one another. They will mate if induced to do so, but their offspring, called mules, are sterile. Mutations in donkey DNA can therefore never cross over to horses or vice versa. The two types of animals are consequently considered two distinct species, moving along separate evolutionary paths. 
By contrast, a bulldog and a spaniel may look very different, but they are members of the same species, sharing the same DNA pool. They will happily mate, and their puppies will grow up to pair off with other dogs and produce more puppies. Species that evolved from a common ancestor are bunched together under the heading genus. Lions, tigers, leopards, and jaguars are different species within the genus Panthera. Biologists label organisms with a two-part Latin name, genus, followed by species. Lions, for example, are called Panthera leo, the species leo of the genus Panthera. Presumably, everyone reading this book is a Homo sapiens. The species sapiens of the genus Homo. Genera, in their turn, are grouped into families such as the cats, lions, cheetahs, house cats, the dogs, wolves, foxes, jackals, and the elephants, elephants, mammoths, mastodons. All members of a family trace their lineage back to a founding matriarch or patriarch. All cats, for example, from the smallest house kitchen to the most ferocious lion, share a common feline ancestor who lived about 25 million years ago. Homo sapiens, too, belongs to a family. This banal fact used to be one of history's most closely guarded secrets. Homo sapiens long preferred to view itself as set apart from animals, an orphan who has no family, no cousins, and most importantly, no parents. But that's just not the case. Like it or not, we are members of a large and particularly noisy family called the Great Apes. Our nearest living relatives include chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. The chimpanzees are the closest. Just six million years ago, a single female ape had two daughters. One became the ancestor of all chimpanzees, the other is our own grandmother. Skeletons in the Closet Homo sapiens has kept hidden an even more disturbing secret. Not only do we possess an abundance of uncivilized cousins, once upon a time we had quite a few brothers and sisters as well. We are used to thinking about ourselves as the only humans, because for the last 10,000 years our species has indeed been the only human species around. Yet the real meaning of the word human is an animal belonging to the genus Homo, and there used to be many other species of this genus, beside Homo sapiens. Moreover, as we shall see in the last chapter of the book, in the not-so-distant future, we might again have to contend with non-sapiens humans. To clarify this point, I will often use the term sapiens to denote members of the species Homo sapiens, while reserving the term human to refer to all members of the genus Homo. Humans first evolved in East Africa about 2.5 million years ago from an earlier genus of apes called Australopithecus, which means southern ape. About 2 million years ago, some of these archaic men and women left their homeland to journey through and settle vast areas of North Africa, Europe, and Asia. 
Since survival in the snowy forests of northern Europe required different traits than those needed to stay alive in Indonesia's steaming jungles, human populations evolved in different directions. The result was several distinct species, to each of which scientists have assigned a pompous Latin name. Humans in Europe and Western Asia evolved into Homo neanderthalensis, man from the Neander Valley, popularly referred to simply as Neanderthals. Neanderthals, bulkier and more muscular than us sapiens, were well adapted to the cold climate of Ice Age, Western Eurasia. The more eastern regions of Asia were populated by Homo erectus, upright man, who survived there for close to two million years, making it the most durable human species ever. This record is unlikely to be broken even by our own species. It is doubtful whether Homo sapiens will still be around a thousand years from now, so two million years is really out of our league. On the island of Java in Indonesia lived Homo solensis, man from the Solo Valley, who was suited to a life in the tropics. On another Indonesian island, the small island of Flores, archaic humans underwent a process of dwarfing. Humans first reached Flores when the sea level was exceptionally low, and the island was easily accessible from the mainland. When the seas rose again, some people were trapped on the island, which was poor in resources. Big people who needed a lot of food died first. Smaller fellows survived much better. Over the generations, the people of Flores became dwarves. This unique species, known by scientists as Homo florensis, reached a maximum height of only 3.5 feet and weighed no more than 55 pounds. They were nevertheless able to produce stone tools and even managed occasionally to hunt down some of the island's elephants. Though, to be fair, the elephants were a dwarf species as well. In 2010, another lost sibling was rescued from oblivion when scientists excavating the Denisova cave in Siberia discovered a fossilized finger bone. Genetic analysis proved that the finger belonged to a previously unknown human species, which was named Homo Denisova. Who knows how many lost relatives of ours are waiting to be discovered in other caves, on other islands, and in other climes. While these humans were evolving in Europe and Asia, evolution in East Africa did not stop. The cradle of humanity continued to nurture numerous new species, such as Homo rudolfensis, man from Lake Rudolph, Homo ergaster, working man, and eventually our own species, which we've immodestly named Homo sapiens, wise man. The members of some of these species were massive and others were dwarves. Some were fearsome hunters and others meek plant gatherers. Some lived only on a single island while many roamed over continents, but all of them belonged to the genus Homo. They were all human beings. 
It's a common fallacy to envision these species as arranged in a sing straight line of descent, with Ergaster begetting Erectus, Erectus begetting the Neanderthals, and the Neanderthals evolving into us. This linear model gives the mistaken impression that at any particular moment, only one type of human inhabited the Earth, and that all earlier species were merely older models of ourselves. The truth is that from about 2 million years ago until around 10,000 years ago, the world was home at one and the same time to several human species. And why not? Today, there are many species of foxes, bears, and pigs. The earth of a hundred millennia years ago was walked by at least six different species of man. It's our current exclusivity, not that multi-species past, that is particular and perhaps incriminating. As we will shortly see, we sapiens have good reasons to repress the memory of our siblings. There is no justice in history. Understanding human history in the millennia following the agricultural revolution boils down to a single question. How did humans organize themselves in mass cooperation networks when they lacked the biological instincts necessary to sustain such networks? The short answer is that humans created imagined orders and devised scripts. These two inventions filled the gaps left by our biological inheritance. However, the appearance of these networks was, for many, a dubious blessing. The imagined orders sustaining these networks were neither neutral nor fair. They divided people into make-believe groups, arranged in a hierarchy. The upper levels enjoyed privileges and power, while the lower ones suffered from discrimination and oppression. Hammurabi's code, for example, established a pecking order of superiors, commoners, and slaves. Superiors got all the good things in life. Commoners got what was left. Slaves got a beating if they complained. Despite its proclamation of the equality of all men, the imagined order established by the Americans in 1776 also established a hierarchy. It created a hierarchy between men who benefited from it and women whom it left disempowered. It created a hierarchy between whites who enjoyed liberty and blacks and American Indians who were considered humans of a lesser type and therefore did not share in the equal rights of men. Many of those who signed the Declaration of Independence were slaveholders. They did not release their slaves upon signing the Declaration, nor did they consider themselves hypocrites. In their view, the rights of men had little to do with Negroes. The American order also consecrated the hierarchy between rich and poor. Most Americans at that time had little problem with the inequality caused by wealthy parents 
passing their money and businesses on to their children. In their view, equality meant simply that the same laws applied to rich and poor. It had nothing to do with unemployment benefits, integrated education, or health insurance. Liberty, too, carried very different connotations than it does today. In 1776, it did not mean that the disempowered, certainly not blacks or Indians, or God forbid, women, could gain and exercise power. It meant simply that the state could not, except in unusual circumstances, confiscate a citizen's private property or tell him what to do with it. The American order thereby upheld the hierarchy of wealth, which some thought was mandated by God and others viewed as representing the immutable laws of nature. Nature, it was claimed, rewarded merit with wealth while penalizing indolence. All the above-mentioned distinctions between free persons and slaves, between whites and blacks, between rich and poor, are rooted in fictions. The hierarchy of men and women will be discussed later. Yet it is an iron rule of history that every imagined hierarchy disavows its fictional origins and claims to be natural and inevitable. For instance, many people who have viewed the hierarchy of free persons and slaves as natural and correct have argued that slavery is not a human invention. Hammurabi saw it as ordained by the gods. Aristotle argued that slaves have a slavish nature, whereas free people have a free nature. Their status in society is merely a reflection of their innate nature. Ask white supremacists about the racial hierarchy and you are in for a pseudoscientific lecture concerning the biological differences between the races. You are likely to be told that there is something in Caucasian blood or genes that makes whites naturally more intelligent, moral, and hardworking. Ask a diehard capitalist about the hierarchy of wealth, and you are likely to hear that it is the inevitable outcome of objective differences in abilities. The rich have more money in this view because they are more capable and di diligent. No one should be bothered, then, if the wealthy got better health care, better education, and better nutrition. The rich richly deserve every perk they enjoy. Hindus who adhere to the caste system believe that cosmic forces have made one caste superior to another. According to a famous Hindu creation myth, the gods fashioned the world out of the body of a primeval being, the Purusa. The sun was created from the Purusa's eye, the moon from the Purusa's brain, the Brahmins from its mouth, the Kshatriyas warriors from its arm, the Vaishyas peasants and merchants from its thighs, and the Shudras servants from its legs. Accept this explanation 
and the socio-political differences between Brahmins and Shudras are as natural and eternal as the differences between the sun and the moon. The ancient Chinese believed that when the goddess Nuwa created humans from earth, she needed aristocrats from fine yellow soil, whereas commoners were formed from brown mud. Yet, to the best of our understanding, these hierarchies are all the product of human imagination. Brahmins and Shudras were not really created by the gods from different body parts of a primeval being. Instead, the distinction between the two castes was created by laws and norms invented by humans in northern India about 3,000 years ago. Contrary to Aristotle, there is no known biological difference between slaves and free people. Human laws and norms have turned some people into slaves and others into masters. Between blacks and whites, there are some objective biological differences, such as skin color and hair type, but there is no evidence that the differences extend to intelligence or morality. Most people claim that their social hierarchy is natural and just, while those of other societies are based on false and ridiculous criteria. Modern Westerners are taught to scoff at the idea of a racial hierarchy. They are shocked by laws prohibiting blacks to live in white neighborhoods, or to study in white schools, or to be treated in white hospitals. But the hierarchy of rich and poor, which mandates that rich people live in separate and more luxurious neighborhoods, study in separate and more prestigious schools, and receive medical treatment in separate and better equipped facilities, seems perfectly sensible to many Americans and Europeans. Yet, it's a proven fact that most rich people are rich for the simple reason that they were born into a rich family, while most poor people will remain poor throughout their lives simply because they were born into a poor family. Unfortunately, complex human societies seem to require imagined hierarchies and unjust discrimination. Of course, not all hierarchies are morally identical, and some societies suffered from more extreme types of discrimination than others. Yet scholars know of no large society that has been able to dispense with discrimination altogether. Time and time again, people have created order in their societies by classifying the population into imagined categories such as superiors, commoners, and slaves, whites and blacks, patricians and plebeians, brahmins and shudras, or rich and poor. These categories have regulated relations between millions of humans by making some people legally, politically, or socially superior to others. Hierarchies serve an important function. They, they enable complete strangers to know how to treat one another without wasting the time and energy needed to become personally acquainted. In George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, Henry Higgins doesn't need to establish an intimate acquaintance 
with Eliza Doolittle in order to understand how he should relate to her. Just hearing her talk tells him she is a member of the underclass with whom he can do as he wishes. For example, using her as a pawn in his bet to pass off a flower girl as a duchess. A modern Eliza working at a florist's needs to know how much effort to put into selling roses and gladioli to the dozens of people who enter the shop each day. She can't make a detailed inquiry into the tastes and wallets of each individual. Instead, she uses social cues, the way the person is dressed, his or her age, and if she's not politically correct, his skin color. That is how she immediately distinguishes between the accounting firm's partner, who's likely to place a large order for expensive roses, and a messenger boy who can only afford a bunch of daisies. Of course, differences in natural abilities also play a role in the formation of social distinctions. But such diversities of aptitudes and character are usually mediated through imagined hierarchies. This happens in two important ways. First and foremost, most abilities have to be nurtured and developed. Even if someone is born with a particular talent, that talent will usually remain latent if it is not fostered, honed, and exercised. Not all people get the same chance to cultivate and refine their abilities. Whether or not they have such an opportunity will usually depend on their place within their society's imagined hierarchy. Harry Potter is a good example. Removed from his distinguished wizard family and brought up by ignorant muggles, he arrives at Hogwarts without any experience in magic. It takes him seven books to gain a firm command of his powers and knowledge of his unique abilities. Second, even if people belonging to different classes develop exactly the same abilities, they are unlikely to enjoy equal success because they will have to play the game by different rules. If, in British-ruled India, an untouchable, a Brahmin, a Catholic Irishman, and a Protestant Englishman had somehow developed exactly the same business acumen, they still would not have had the same chance of becoming rich. The economic game was rigged by legal restrictions and unofficial glass ceilings. The Vicious Circle All societies are based on imagined hierarchies, but not necessarily on the same hierarchies. What accounts for the differences? Why did traditional Indian society classify people according to caste, Ottoman society according to religion, and American society according to race? In most cases, the hierarchy originated as the result of a set of accidental historical circumstances and was then perpetuated and refined over many generations as different groups developed vested interests in it. For instance, many scholars surmise that the Hindu caste system took shape 
when Indo-Aryan people invaded the Indian subcontinent about 3,000 years ago, subjugating the local population. The invaders established a stratified society in which they, of course, occupied the leading positions, priests and warriors, leaving the natives to live as servants and slaves. The invaders, who were few in number, feared losing their privileged status and unique identity. To forestall this danger, they divided the population into castes, each of which was required to pursue a specific occupation or, or perform a specific role in society. Each had different legal status, privileges, and duties. Mixing of castes, social interaction, marriage, even the sharing of meals was prohibited. And the distinctions were not just legal, they became an inherent part of religious mythology and practice. The rulers argued that the caste system reflected an eternal cosmic reality rather than a chance historical development. Concepts of purity and impurity were essential elements in Hindu religion, and they were harnessed to buttress the social pyramid. Pious Hindus were taught that contact with members of a different caste could pollute not only them personally, but society as a whole, and should therefore be abhorred. Such ideas are hardly unique to Hindus. Throughout history and in almost all societies, concepts of pollution and purity have played a leading role in enforcing social and political divisions and have been exploited by numerous ruling classes to maintain their privileges. The fear of pollution is not a complete fabrication of priests and princes, however. It probably has its roots in biological survival mechanisms that make humans feel an instinctive revulsion towards potential disease carriers, such as sick persons and dead bodies. If you want to keep any human group isolated, women, Jews, Roma, gays, blacks, the best way to do it is convince everyone that these people are a source of pollution. The Hindu caste system and its attendant laws of purity became deeply embedded in Indian culture. Long after the Indo-Aryan invasion was forgotten, Indians continued to believe in the caste system and to abhor the pollution caused by caste mixing. Castes were not immune to change. In fact, as time went by, large castes were divided into sub-castes. Eventually, the original four castes turned into 3,000 different groupings called jati, birth. But this proliferation of castes did not change the basic principle of the system, according to which every person is born into a particular rank, and any infringement of its rules pollutes the person and society as a whole. A person's jati determines her profession, the food she can eat, her place of residence, and her eligible marriage partners. 
Usually a person can marry only within his or her caste, and the resulting children inherit that status. Whenever a new profession developed or a new group of people appeared on the scene, they had to be recognized as a caste in order to receive a legitimate place within Hindu society. Groups that failed to win recognition as a caste were literally outcasts. In this stratified society, they did not even occupy the lowest rung. They became known as untouchables. They had to live apart from all other people and scrape together a living in humiliating and disgusting ways, such as sifting through garbage dumps for scrap material. Even members of the lowest caste avoided mingling with them, eating with them, touching them, and certainly marrying them. In modern India, matters of marriage and work are still heavily influenced by the caste system, despite all attempts by the democratic government of India to break down such distinctions and convince Hindus that there is nothing polluting in caste mixing. Purity in America. A similar vicious circle perpetuated the racial hierarchy in modern America. From the 16th to the 18th century, the European conquerors imported millions of African slaves to work the mines and plantations of America. They chose to import slaves from Africa rather than from Europe or East Asia to three circumstantial factors. First, Africa was closer, so it was cheaper to import slaves from Senegal than from Vietnam. Secondly, in Africa, there already existed a well-developed slave trade, exporting slaves mainly to the Middle East, whereas in Europe, slavery was very rare. It was obviously far easier to buy slaves in an existing market than to create a new one from scratch. Thirdly, and most importantly, American plantations in places such as Virginia, Haiti, and Brazil were plagued by malaria and yellow fever, which had originated in Africa. Africans had acquired, over the generations, a partial genetic immunity to these diseases, whereas Europeans were totally defenseless and died in droves. It was consequently wiser for a plantation owner to invest his money in an African slave than in a European slave or indentured laborer. Paradoxically, genetic superiority in terms of immunity translated into social inferiority Precisely because Africans were fitter in tropical climates than Europeans, they ended up as the slaves of European masters. Due to these circumstantial factors, the burgeoning new societies of America were to be divided into a ruling caste of white Europeans and a subjugated caste of black Africans. But people don't like to say that they keep slaves of a certain race of origin simply because it's economically expedient. Like the Aryan conquerors of India, 
White Europeans in the Americas wanted to be seen not only as economically successful, but also as pious, just, and objective. Religious and scientific myths were pressed into service to justify this division. Theologians argued that Africans descend from Ham, son of Noah, saddled by his father with a curse that his offspring would be slaves. Biologists argued that blacks are less intelligent than whites and their moral sense less developed. Doctors alleged that blacks live in filth and spread diseases. In other words, they are a source of pollution. These myths struck a chord in American culture and in Western culture generally. They continued to exert their influence long after the conditions that created slavery had appeared. In the early 19th century, Imperial Britain outlawed slavery and stopped the Atlantic slave trade, and in the decades that followed, slavery was gradually outlawed throughout the American continent. Notably, this was the first and only time in history that a large number of slaveholding societies voluntarily abolished slavery. But even though the slaves were freed, the racist myths that justified slavery persisted. Separation of the races was maintained by racist legislation and social custom.